This program is presented by CreamCityUSA.com. These people live in a small village in South Vietnam. They're angry, they're afraid, they're confused. We don't know their names or the name of their village. It doesn't matter. This is Panama, January 1964. These people are about to riot because an American flag has been raised in the canal zone violating an agreement. They are angry and ugly. We're going to have to decide whether we're going to die on the streets of the United States or in South Vietnam. I would choose the United States myself. I would and this is Harlem. It could be Philadelphia or Jersey City. We heard this man or someone like him all year. It was his year of bloody riots and protest, more violent in the North than the South. It was a year when racial anger turned to aggression and destruction. This is a group of young ladies standing outside the Plaza Hotel in New York City. The Beatles are inside, and with any kind of luck, one of them will look out of the window. One of them did. Vietnamese peasants crying out in fear and sorrow. That crowd in Panama. Some young ladies in front of the Plaza Hotel in New York City. It was that kind of year. January 1st, 1964, came in with Chairman Khrushchev going to a party in Moscow and in what was described as a jovial mood, proposed a toast to peace. Archbishop Makarios of Cyprus broke his country's treaties with Britain. President Johnson promised continued support to South Vietnam. President de Gaulle spoke of European unity and understanding with the United States. And a number of Democratic county chairmen voted their choice for vice president. 185 for Senator Hubert Humphrey and 166 for Attorney General Robert Kennedy. On that day, Governor and Mrs. Rockefeller announced they were expecting a baby, and on January 3rd, the junior senator from Arizona made an announcement. I want to tell you that I will seek the Republican presidential nomination, and I have decided to do this because of the principles in which I believe and because I'm convinced that Lincoln uh, lost first in Wisconsin and then lost uh, in Nebraska, I think uh, Mr. Dash ran ahead of him there, but then proceeded to recoup in Oregon. In 1964, these voices would almost drown out all the others, but not quite. In nomine Patris et Filius Spiritus Sancti Amen, in the ancient pasture land that stretches east from the Mediterranean across Israel to the Sea of Galilee lies a small village called Nazareth. It was here that Joseph lived with his wife Mary, and it was here that their son Jesus grew to manhood, laboring, at least so says tradition, as a carpenter. In January of this year, setting aside tradition, almost as old as Christianity itself, Paul VI, Pope of Rome, visited Nazareth and said Mass in the grotto beneath the lofty, gracious Church of the Annunciation. He was the first Pope to visit the Holy Land since Peter. He was the first Pope to fly. And in his meetings with Athenagoras I, Patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church, other changes were hinted. A reunion of Rome with what the Church delicately calls the Separated Brethren. It was three days after Pope Paul returned to Rome. Panamanian students, responsive to their elders' discontent over traditional privileges accorded to Americans in the Canal Zone, marched to the Balboa High School in the zone and hoisted the Panamanian flag. They were within their rights. American students, in defiance of a year-old law, had neglected or declined to raise the Panamanian flag with the American flag, and feelings were hurt. It seems like a fairly modest dispute. It was not. Protest demonstrations grew and spread across the country. Troops were called. First rocks were thrown, then bullets fired. 23 people were killed, 350 wounded. And in one more place, in one more village street, there were voices raised against the Yankee villain. More posters, more slogans, and when it was over, 
another country where welcome had turned to toleration and courtesy was a thing pegged to the Yankee dollar. It was January, and already the year was old. Hey, everybody! Mass Vegeta, come on! Hey! But if much of the world was restive this year and sullen and resentful of the past, there was a certain gaiety here. The word is discotheque. It is difficult to define because it is many things, a kind of music, a kind of dance, the place where these dances are held, and the clothes that tradition demands. And of course, in this country, anything over six months old is automatically a tradition. The music is almost always on records, and the dances, based on the twist, now hopelessly out of date, are variously called the frug, the watusi, the monkey, the mashed potato. All of these, with minor variations, are characterized by a kind of joyous agitation. Women's dresses for these folk rituals tend to be black, very straight, one strand of pearls, necklines low enough to embarrass the National Geographic, to join in one of these functions, one should be reasonably young and relatively free of inhibitions, whether economic, puritanic, or arthritic. Anthropologists disagree about the cultural significance of these festivals, and so we won't really find out until more facts are brought to hand or more anthropologists learn to dance. Hey! The first shock hit at 5.36 on the evening of March 28th. It was massive. 25,000 square miles of the Alaskan Peninsula were virtually lifted from three to eight feet. The Earth's core, responding to some deep and monumental imbalance, adjusted hugely. The first shock and the others that followed sent up ocean waves that raced across the Pacific and battered the coastlines of Midway and Hawaii and Japan. Earth tremors were felt in Houston, Texas. In Anchorage, there were buckled streets and shattered buildings. Kodiak and Seward were hard hit, and the casualty lists rose. The final count was 114 dead, including some in California who were victims of tidal waves set in motion by the shocks. Relief was immediate and efficient. Food and medicine flown in, shelters set up, Congress voted $50 million to help rebuild. And in this sullen year, a generous and gracious postscript. The Japanese, recalling the American aid that poured into that country after the Tokyo earthquake in 1923, donated $10,000 to help rebuild Alaska. I am the greatest. You never know what I'm going to come up with. A movie star or a champ like me just don't stop at one thing. You never know what you're going to hear when you tackle me. This man's name is Cassius Clay. He's a prize fighter. At the time he issued the judgment we have just heard, it was generally agreed he was the second best heavyweight in the world. Well, he questioned this, and through the proper channels issued a challenge to the world champion, a sullen, fistic journeyman named Sonny Liston. Shortly before the contest, Clay predicted the outcome. Contrary to a practice long observed among professional fighters, he did it in verse. Clay comes out to meet Liston, and Liston starts to retreat. If Liston goes back an inch farther, he'll end up in a ringside seat. Clay swings with the left, Clay swings with the right. Look at young Cassius carry the fight. Liston keeps backing, but there's not enough room. It's a matter of time, and Clay lures the boom. Now Clay lands with the right. What a beautiful swing, and the punch raises the bear clear out of the ring. Yes, the crowd did not dream when they laid down their money that they would see a total eclipse of the sunny. <laughs> The fight took place at Miami Beach on the evening of February 25th. It didn't end quite as dramatically as Clay forecast. In fact, the whole encounter was fairly dull. Liston suffered an injury to his arm and failed to answer the bell for the eighth round, and Clay became champion. The receipts were $402,000, modest for a championship fight. To put it starkly, the giants in that sport have gone. This year, they sent boys to take their place. And the year moved on. Bones, identified as being a million seven hundred thousand years old, were found and said to be from an ancestor of the human race. A London clerk won $630,375.20 in a football pool. Spring came pretty much on schedule. 
the Chicago police, in a swift but somewhat delicate maneuver, arrested a young lady who appeared at a public beach in a topless bathing suit. But if a man has been wearing a topless swimsuit for so many years, why can't I? In New York City, there was a World's Fair. President Johnson came to make a few remarks at the opening ceremonies. So did a number of civil rights demonstrators. The president spoke, and embarrassingly, the demonstrators we demonstrated. We to disguise our imperfections or to cover up our failures. Rather, we freely admit them, and we bend our energy and our toil to correct them. I know... It was very clear, very early, that the summer would be a rough one. Even if there had been no signs, the words spoken were clear enough. 1964 will probably see more uh, violence here in America between the races than any other year has ever seen. Primarily because the Negroes were fed up last year. But the this man calls himself Malcolm X, leaving off his last name, which is inappropriate. His last name is Little. He's the leader of a group called the Black Nationalists, an organization that maintains that only through violence can the Negro assert his rights. But none of these things produced any results. So this year, the same Negroes, as soon as it gets warm, will be out in the street demonstrating. And it will build up and build up and build up, and there's no gimmick like the March on Washington. It was spring in New York, forsythia blooming in Brooklyn's backyards, beachwear shown in Macy's windows, and already they were talking of a long, hot summer. This happened to be New York, but this story had no dateline. 116 arrested in Atlanta in January... 90 arrested in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. In Cleveland, 18,000 children boycott the schools protesting racial imbalance. White pupils in Macon County High School in Alabama boycott the schools because of the enrollment of six Negroes. On June 6, 50 are arrested in a demonstration in St. Augustine, Florida. We must not approach the observance and enforcement of this law in a vengeful spirit. Its purpose is not to punish. Its purpose is not to divide, but to end divisions. Divisions which have lasted all... It was July 2nd. After long debates in the House and Senate, Congress, by majorities of more than two to one in both houses, had passed the Civil Rights Bill, and the President has signed it into law. This Civil Rights Act is a challenge to all of us to go to work in our communities and our states, in our homes and in our hearts, to eliminate the last vestiges of injustice in our beloved country. The law is crystal clear. It says that voting booths, classrooms, federally assisted programs, public parks, hotels, and other places serving the public shall be open to all members of the public on an equal basis. It was hoped, of course, that the passage of the bill would cool down the long, hot summer. It did not. On July 16th, in the Yorkville section of New York, Police Lieutenant Thomas Gilligan shot and killed a 15-year-old Negro boy named James Powell. Gilligan said the boy pulled a knife on him. Two nights later, a protest meeting was held in Harlem. The final speaker, a Reverend Nelson C. Dukes, told the crowd it was time to stop talking and act. At Duke's urging, the crowd marched to a nearby police station to demand Gilligan be fired. The police set up barricades. There was a scuffle. This turned into a riot, and it spread through Central Harbor. Negroes threw bottles at the police. Orders to disperse were ignored, and huge crowds swarmed through the streets. Police, under attack from the mobs, fired over their heads. Many took advantage of the excitement to break display windows and loot the stores. Negro areas in Brooklyn rioted in sympathy, and there again there was the same pattern. Rocks and bottles thrown down from the rooftops, looting, and police gunfire. Philadelphia was next, then Rochester, Jersey City, and responsible Negro leaders spoke out vigorously against the rioting, but for the first time there was talk of backlash, a reaction against a reaction. There was no spokesman as such for this feeling, but there was speculation that it was widespread. There were those who said that the riots would cost Democratic votes and would win votes for a candidate strong enough to give it voice and meaning. I sadly remind you tonight that we are seeing violence in those very states which are proving 
that new laws alone are not the answer. Barry Goldwater, Republican senator from Arizona. He is vigorous, handsome, and conservative. Two years earlier, a year earlier, those who said he would one day be a candidate for president were thought to be visionary and unrealistic. They were neither. And then there is this above all, the oldest law of all. You can't pass a law that will make me like you or you like me. On January 4th in Los Angeles, he said Rockefeller was more of a Democrat than a Republican, and so there was no sense in debating him. The next day, in a television interview, he said if elected, he would demand concessions from the Soviet Union by threatening to break diplomatic relations, and that he would break the nuclear test ban treaty if testing in the atmosphere appeared to be to our advantage. Four days later, in New Hampshire, he said this country's long-range missiles were not reliable. Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara called that statement completely misleading, politically irresponsible, and damaging to the national security. We must reassure, in a more concrete way, our allies in NATO that we mean what we say when we're, we say we're coming to their assistance. And then we must equip them with modern weapons, and in my opinion, we must give the commander, this is General Lemnitzer, not commanders, not lieutenants and captains and majors, but the commander, more leeway in the use of these weapons should NATO and NATO countries ever be attacked. Among Goldwater opponents, Republicans as well as Democrats, the phrase shooting from the hip came to be heard. On February 29th, Oklahoma's Republicans pledged their 22 convention votes to Goldwater. He lost in the New Hampshire primary 33,007 write-in votes for Henry Cabot Lodge, to 20,692 for Goldwater. Governor Nelson Rockefeller, Goldwater's most energetic rival, got 19,504. But Goldwater won in Illinois and Texas, and the list began to grow. Victories in Indiana, Nebraska, though in Oregon he lost badly to Rockefeller. The big test was California. It was victory for Goldwater, but a close one, a million eighty-nine thousand to Rockefeller's million thirty thousand, but it was a victory. Rockefeller had lost more than just a primary, and he knew it. Goldwater was more cautious. On the uh, basis of the electronic computation so far, uh, I seem to be the winner. I'm still somewhat of an old-fashioned uh, conservative politician. I like to see them all totaled up the next morning. But, uh, Gentlemen, this has been a pretty exciting primary. Teetered back and forth all last night. And now I think that we can fairly say that the members of the Republican Party of California have spoken. On June 19th, Goldwater voted against the Civil Rights Bill. The convention was less than a month away. First, the preliminaries. It was a tough debate. Uh, it almost got out of hand on uh, several occasions. You must understand the temper of this group of people. Uh, there wasn't a mention of God in the first two sections. This man's name is Silvio Cunny, a Republican representative from Massachusetts, a moderate, and a member of the Platform Committee. The committee meetings were secret, but Mr. Cunny's account of the proceedings was dramatic and revealing. Very vicious. I was surprised. They couldn't even hide their feelings. They came out openly, especially some of the women uh, who downgraded the immigrants in this country, said that our insane asylums are, uh, are filled because of immigrants, that our welfare rolls are, are packed because of immigrants, that uh, we have so many mentally retarded people because of immigrants, and uh, this upset me no end, being the son of immigrant parents, uh, first generation who came over here from Italy. There were those who said that many of Goldwater's supporters were voting for him by default, that there simply weren't any other attractive candidates. General Eisenhower seemed to support Goldwater, but he also said he wanted an open convention. It simply wasn't clear how he felt. I've come here to offer our party a real choice. I reject the echo we have thus far been handed. On June 12th, rather and late and rather tentative, and with an Eisenhower endorsement that was at once implied and denied, a new candidate announced himself, William Scranton, governor of Pennsylvania. I come here to announce that I am a candidate for the presidency of the United States. Goldwater graciously responded that he welcomed the candidacy of Governor Scranton. He called him Bill. He must have known that Bill would be no threat at the convention.
The Republican convention came to order quietly at 20 minutes after 10 Pacific time on the morning of July 13th. The scene was San Francisco in an auditorium called the Cow Palace. On the surface, at least, it all looked conventional and familiar, people wearing funny hats, regiments of reporters, music, cheering on cue, and behind the scenes, people speaking endlessly into telephones, as though unless their elbows were bent, they couldn't open their mouth. They, they must be overcome, and the Republican Party... And the Republican Governor Mark Hatfield of Oregon made the keynote address. Part of it was a plea for moderation. The delegates were responsive to Hatfield. He was not a candidate. But Governor Rockefeller was, and when his turn came to speak, it was clear how it would all come out. During this year, I have crisscrossed this nation, fighting for these principles, fighting to keep the Republican Party. The party... fighting to keep the Republican Party the party of all the people and warning of the extremist threat, its danger to the party. Even before the voting, it was apparent that the Goldwater forces had it all sewed up, and the balloting simply proved what was already known. Rhode Island, 14 votes. Mr. Chairman, Rhode Island, America's first vacation land, casts 11 votes for Governor Stratton, 3 votes for Senator Goldwater. Rhode Island, 3, Goldwater, 11, Scranton. Clearly, it was Goldwater. It was the South Carolina vote that did it. Mr. Chairman! Mr. Chairman! Mr. Chairman! Delegates will be in order. Secretary will continue the call of the roll. South Carolina, 16 votes. Mr. Chairman, humbly grateful that we can do this for America. South Carolina cares 16 votes for Senator Barry Goldwater to put him over the top. The next day, Representative William E. Miller of New York, Republican National Chairman, was nominated for the vice presidency. And only one question remained to be settled. How would Senator Goldwater go about gathering in the moderate Republicans who had worked against him? It's a problem that faces any candidate when the race is close. You could almost write the speech now is the time to put behind us those disagreements which in the past have divided us and united in resolve and spirit. Senator Goldwater said something like that, but the sentence that everyone would remember was this. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. These are Buddhist monks in the city of Saigon, the capital of South Vietnam. It's a lovely city with broad boulevards, cafes chic with remembered Frenchness and pretty girls on bicycles. American soldiers there don't see its charm. 
Since 1961, almost 300 Americans have died in that country, and no one says that there won't be more. Saigon, temple bells and Buddhist monks in bright saffron robes who chant together in some unknown discipline. And beyond the city, unknown numbers of the Viet Cong raid and burn, and the end is not in sight. Viet Cong rebels, disciplined and well-supplied from bases in communist North Vietnam, have for years fought tenaciously and skillfully to overthrow the American-supported Saigon governments. The fighting is frequently at night, brief but vicious encounters in which one side tries to defend the hundreds of little villages scattered throughout the country, the other to capture, or failing this, to destroy. The war is relatively minor in its scope, but tremendous in potential. It is American guns against Russian and Chinese guns, a place where we and they confront each other with only a pretense in between. There have been five new governments since the beginning of the year. They changed nothing. A near showdown came this summer. On August 2nd, the USS destroyer Maddox was cruising in the waters of Tonkin Gulf, about 30 miles off the coast of North Vietnam. Three PT boats from North Vietnam approached the Maddox and attacked. The Maddox returned the fire. Four United States fighter planes joined in. The PT boats were driven off. Two days later, the attackers tried it again. The Maddox and the Sea Turner Joy, another destroyer, hit back. It was a three-hour action in rough seas. 25 of the attacking patrol boats were hit. There was no damage to United States ships. The attacks ended. And this year, on the little Mediterranean island of Cyprus, another brutal reminder that the world's affairs are in disorder. Archbishop Makarios, president of Cyprus, charged that some parts of the country's constitution inhibited progress and so should be struck out. The Turks on Cyprus, jealous of their liberty, objected. Vicious fighting broke out. If they keep on shooting to this hospital, there'll be nothing. And if there is no place to keep the wounded ones, then we are all gone. The island is too small for an easy war. United Nations troops were landed in March and a kind of sullen order was restored. But horror, known intimately, is not quickly forgotten. A woman, a Turkish nurse, tried to define it. I repeat and repeat that. Yesterday, they, we couldn't get our dead bodies. And we left them. We could have shot them down because the ambulance came right here. But our men didn't do that. Why? Because it was a wounded. And you don't shoot somebody which doesn't hold gun in her hand. You only shoot people which they hold gun. And there was another voice this year, a calm voice, strong with courage. The army is regrouping between us, somewhere between us and Stanleyville, and uh, we will have to see what comes next. It was in the Congo. The rebels who opposed the fragile leadership of Moïse Shambi overran a number of towns in the northeast. They captured some Europeans and a few Americans as they went. Here is Dr. Paul E. Carlson, an American missionary in the Congo. They could take us out by river. But all has come here, and we thank God for that. He did not survive. In some monstrous proceedings, he was called a spy, and he died in a rebel-killing spree just minutes before rescue came. Belgian paratroopers flown in American planes landed at Stanleyville, the rebel capital, and took the town. They rescued hundreds, but for many it was too late. And in the Congo, as in Vietnam, the fighting goes on, and the night's dead are part of every morning, and there are children who no longer weep at killing. They're battling for the championship of the world. They're battling shoulder to shoulder. Tokyo outdid itself for the Olympics. The waiters learned English, or at least enough to comprehend the subtle difference between scrambled eggs and stewed corn. There were flags everywhere, nice places to stay, and for elated Americans, gold medals in swimming, basketball, and a gratifying number of track events. But the big one was the 10,000-meter run. This country had never won it before. Six miles is a long run for any American. And here's how it ended. Clark is taking him. No, Gamuti is saving off the challenge. Clark is sprinting. Gamuti is out in front by you. He goes Mills of the USA. Mills of the USA. He won. He won. Followed by Gamuti and Clark. Olympic record. 28 and it's 24-1-10 seconds. What a fantastic victory for the United States. Professional football continued to draw big crowds and big money, but there were some changes. Y.A. Tittle of the New York Giants was out, 
and Johnny Unitas of the Baltimore Colts was in. And in baseball, Yogi Berra was in, out, and in again. He was picked to manage the Yankees, won the pennant, lost the series, and was promptly fired. Just as promptly, he was hired by the New York Mets. The significance of all this is a little difficult to say with certainty, and perhaps the best comment is to quote Yogi himself in a classic comment on the shadows in the Yankee Stadium outfield. It gets laid out there early. Potatoes are cheaper, tomatoes are cheaper, now's the time to... There is, I suppose, a whole generation now to whom this voice is strange and unfamiliar. His name was Eddie Kent. He had big eyes, a brash voice, and an odd kind of a peep. In a business that is permissive and uncritical of personal laxity, he was austere and disciplined. He had a long apprenticeship in his craft, and indeed, his whole life was a process of learning how to be gay, how to be funny. In this, he was eminently successful. There were the vaudeville years, Broadway shows, Ziegfeld Follies, movies, and in the decade of the 30s, a radio show where he made fun of the Depression and told all of his old vaudeville jokes and sang this song. If you capture your steady, just name the first Eddie. Now's the time to fall in love. He died on October 10th in Hollywood of a coronary occlusion. He was 72. And there was another this year, Gracie Allen of Burns and Allen. Well, Gracie, say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. <laughs> what do I do now? Well, and there were others, of course. Oh, right. Indian Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru, student of Gandhi and Thoreau and British law, a leader of the Indian independence movement, inventor of a kind of aggressive neutrality. There was Lord Beaverbrook and Lady Astor, Alan Ladd and William Bendix, Cole Porter and Harpo Marx, and at the age of 84, and stubbornly after three operations, General of the Army, Douglas MacArthur. He had been a man of many controversies. This much was beyond dispute. He fought as well as any general this country has ever known. And in his speeches, he topped them all. I now close my military career and just fade away. An old soldier who tried to do his duty as God gave him the light to see that duty. Goodbye. And at the age of 90, Herbert Clark Hoover, 31st President of the United States. He was president when the Depression came and suffered the penalty that all pay who are in the wrong place at the wrong time. He knew vindication of a sort, at least in his later years, and it must have given him satisfaction and solace. His memories were long and deep. I was taken from this village to the far west 78 years ago. The only material assets which I had were two dimes in my pocket, the suit of clothes that I wore, and I had some extra underpinnings provided by loving aunts. But I carried from here something much more precious. I had a stern grounding of religious faith. I carried with me recollections of a joyous childhood where the winter snow... And, and it's a measure of his greatness that his personal memories were part of the folk memories of the land. This was not a memorable year in the arts. There were still seven of them, and they were still reasonably lively, but there was no single book or play that overshadowed all others. The most significant book of 1964 was, in a sense, not a book at all. It was a report... The published findings of the Warren Commission after 10 months of hearings into the assassination of President John Kennedy. In this country, but more especially in Europe, there were those who said that Lee Harvey Oswald was acting in concert with others, that there were power groups, foreign and domestic, who impelled him to his act. The Commission said that this was not so, and Texas Governor John Connolly, who was wounded when the President died, thought it might stem the rumors. Uh, if you will recall, there were a great many reports, rumors, uh, rampant throughout this country and particularly all over Europe that this was the result of a conspiracy. Uh, I have never felt that it was. The Commission finds that it was not. And I think this, this will have a particularly salutary effect uh, throughout the country, throughout the free world. And in Dallas, Texas, on March 14th, some unfinished business was completed. The jury, deliberating the guilt or innocence of Jack Ruby, the killer of Oswald, announced that they had reached a verdict. Judge Joel B. Brown, following custom, repeated the verdict and the sentence. 
We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of murder with malice as charged in the indictment and assess his punishment at death. Signed, Max E. Causey Foreman. So say you all, ladies and gentlemen. Is that your unanimous verdict? All right, Sheriff, he's your prisoner. The sentence, by the way, was appealed, and that too was proper, but most of us wanted only to get on to other things. On Broadway, musicals predominated again with David Merrick's Hello, Dolly, the biggest hit. Carol Channing's singing of the title song became the biggest political sound of the year with new lyrics. Hello, Mr. President. This is Carol, Mr. President. Carol Channing, come to sing a song for you. The Democrats already had their president. There would be no midnight compromises, no smoke-filled rooms, none of the drama of a roll call. Their problem at the convention was to jazz it up, and they did it fairly well. And the folks saying that the people know that you've got so much more. So flash that smile in and show us that winning style. Promise you'll stay with us in 64. The leading candidate for vice president was Hubert H. Humphrey, the liberal senator from Minnesota. The president might have announced his choice months before the convention, but Mr. Johnson held off his announcement and there was a certain tension among newsmen. Even Humphrey himself was not entirely sure. It was a good example of how suspense can create interest. People who run beauty contests have used the same technique for years. President Johnson played it as far as he could. Governor Pat Brown of California, maybe, or New York's Mayor Wagner. When he finally tipped his hand, you could almost forget that the issue had never really been an issue at all. I hope that you will choose as the next Vice President of the United States My close, my long time. My, my trusted colleague, Senator Hubert Humphrey of Minnesota. Mr. Humphrey, like Mr. Johnson, is supremely professional. And when they run a show, it's professional too. Here is Hubert Humphrey in top form. The subject of his remarks, the record of Barry Goldwater, senator from Arizona. Most, most Democrats and Republicans in the Senate voted for an 11 and one half billion dollar tax cut for American citizens and American business, but not Senator Goldwater. Most Democrats and Republicans in the Senate voted for the National Defense Education Act, but not the temporary... <laughs> and my fellow Americans, most Democrats and most Republicans in the Senate voted to help the United Nations in its peacekeeping functions when it was in financial difficulty, but not Senator Goldwater. You could almost forget at times that the key figure was not there at all. Almost, but not quite. Mr. Chairman. Sometimes he seemed to fill the room. He was a giant, of course, and taller in death than most men are in life. His voice was not heard. But for one almost shocking moment, it seemed to be, the same inflection, the same broad A, Robert Kennedy spoke of his brother. 
and the applause that came 16 minutes in an eerie, spontaneous ovation was a tribute not for the living, but for the dead. I wish to speak uh, just for a few moments. I first uh, want to thank all of you, as delegates to the Democratic National Convention, and the supporters of the Democratic Party, for all that you did for President John F. Kennedy. And when there were difficulties, you sustained him. When there were periods of crisis, uh, you stood beside him. When there were periods of happiness, you laughed with him. And when there were periods of sorrow, you comforted him. I realize that uh, as an individual, that we can't just look back, that we must look forward. When I think of President Kennedy, I think of what Shakespeare said in Romeo and Juliet, uh, when he shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars and he shall make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. It is not easy to walk in another man's footsteps. In his acceptance speech, President Johnson made it clear he wanted to go his own way. Our problems are many and are great, but our opportunities are even greater. And let me make this clear. I ask the American people for a mandate not to preside over a finished program, not just to keep things going. I ask the American people for a mandate to begin. Certainly one of the most significant political decisions of 1964 was made by the Democratic Convention. The creation of a permanent committee to help in the registration of Negroes in Mississippi and to see to it that they may participate without hindrance at every level of the Democratic Party in that state. We were promised this time that the American people would be offered a choice and not an echo. This was to be a debate about basic principles. And what do we hear? We hear not philosophy, but mudslinging. Not ideas, but smears and scandal. Not programs, but the old worn out slogans of an old worn out effort written by the same old worn out man trying to frighten the American people. Across the country, we began to choose up sides. The election campaign was hectic, reasonably true to form, and much, much too long. Well, I don't think you're going to let it work, are you? I think I can tell you why they're doing it. They found out that the American people... Because I'm not sure they know what they're doing. But, but it's a fact that Johnson and his curious crew... Goldwater attacked Johnson and Humphrey. Humphrey attacked Goldwater and ignored Miller. Miller concentrated on Humphrey, and Johnson blandly insisted he wasn't campaigning at all. Seem to believe that progress in this country is best served simply and directly through the ever-expanding gift power of the everlastingly growing federal government. Now, one thing we all know, and I assure you I do... What is at issue here is not... Mr. Goldwater's private life, but rather his public role, his public posture in American politics. He's a decent citizen, he's loyal, he's patriotic. I think he'd make a good neighbor, but clearly he's unqualified to be president of the United States. I am telling you, ladies and gentlemen, that this war in South Vietnam is never going to be ended, and it's never going to be won until Barry Goldwater is president of the United States of America. Johnson won easily. The Republicans picked up one governor's chair, and a few of the senators and congressmen who had declined to support Goldwater survived the great Johnson landslide. But it was slim comfort. 
Governor Romney of Michigan kept his seat, thus moving into the front ranks of the battered GOP leadership. Former White House Press Secretary, newly appointed Senator Pierre Salinger, failed in his re-election bid in a close race with one-time movie star George Murphy. Robert Kennedy beat the veteran Kenneth Keating and joined his brother Ted in the United States Senate. The Democratic sweep was massive. The Republicans didn't just lose, they were shattered. Only Mr. Goldwater himself seemed to find some solace. After the returns were in, and a little later than customary, he made his concession, an appearance that did not sound quite so much an admission of failure as a call to battle. I have no bitterness, no rancor at all. I say to the president, as a, as a fellow politician, that he did a wonderful job. He put together a vote total that's larger than has ever been gained in this country. This effort that we engaged in last January the 3rd turns out to be a much longer effort than we thought. It's not an effort that we can drop now, nor do we have any intentions of dropping it now. In Britain, in a campaign a great deal shorter than ours and so restrained it occasionally took on all the excitement of a literary debate, Sir Alec Douglas Hume was defeated as Prime Minister, Harold Wilson was in, and in Commons there was a tiny Labour majority. And that same week, this. Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev speaking by radio to three Russian cosmonauts circling the Earth in a spaceship. From Moscow, the following day, this. It's announced in Moscow that Leonid Brezhnev has been elected first secretary of the Soviet Communist Party's Central Committee. Alexei Kosygin has been appointed chairman of the USSR Council of Ministers. Both the Central Committee plenum and the session of the Parliament's presidium satisfied Nikita Khrushchev's request to relieve him from the duties of first secretary of the party's Central Committee as member of the Central Committee's Presidium and Chairman of the USSR Council of Ministers. It took a couple of days, but Radio Moscow finally explained why. ...to harebrained planning, half-baked conclusions and hasty decisions, and actions divorced from reality, bragging... Communist China's Radio Peking had a different idea about Khrushchev's sins. ...communist construction. He tried in a thousand and one ways to switch back to the old path of capitalism the world's first socialist state, which the Soviet people, under the leadership of Lenin and Stalin, had created by their sweat and And that same week, communist China made some startling and frightening news of its own. The Chinese nuclear device was exploded at a test site near a lake called Lopnor in the Taklamakan Desert of the remote Central Asian province, Sinkiang. Nuclear spread is dangerous to all mankind. The lesson of Lopnar is that we are right to recognize the danger of nuclear spread, that we must continue to work against it, and we will. After contemplation, I conclude that this award which I receive on behalf of that movement is a profound recognition that nonviolence is the answer to the crucial political and moral questions of our time. Martin Luther King, winner of the 1964 Prize for Peace. The year had been a busy one for him, and he lived this year intimately with violence. We must honestly confess that it will be difficult to get a conviction, but I'm always open to creative surprises, and I would certainly hope that Mississippi will surprise the nation and the world in this instance. He was talking about the 21 persons in and around Philadelphia, Mississippi, who were arrested in connection with the murder last summer of three civil rights workers. The indictments, based on federal statutes, were thrown out by a local judge. In the eyes of the Justice Department, at least, the case remained open. This signal comes from Mariner 4, a United States space vehicle that at year's end was on its way to the planet Mars. It's a 335 million mile trip. If things go right, it will send back television pictures of the surface of the planet. And on the last day of July, in an act of almost unbelievable virtuosity, American scientists sent a rocket full of television cameras to the moon. Excellent pictures were sent back. The moments just before the impact were magnificent. 
And even for the busy scientists and engineers in the tracking room, tense and dramatic. Ten seconds. Excellent signal strength. We're receiving pictures to the end. The year's end was strangely like the year's beginning. There was some improvement. In Panama, there were beginning talks for a new treaty to ease matters in the canal zone and leading possibly to a new canal across the isthmus. Russia seemed a little less remote after the announcement that a profit-making scheme would now apply to the heavy as well as light industries. But new angry voices were raised against us in the United Nations. Voices from new African countries thought to be our friends. And even more hurtful somehow, there was growing resentment against us in the Philippines. And new leaders were emerging in South Vietnam who were complaining openly about American interference. The riots made the big sounds this year and the wars and agitated people, young and old. It is a commonplace that those events that make the loudest noise are the ones that seem the most important. Maybe they are for a day or so, but not for all time. These are sounds from space, from beyond our solar system. It sounds like any static. The universe is full of it. But for some, at least, this sound is particularly curious. There are now operating several devices designed to catch and listen to signals from space. Most of the sound is cosmic static. But here, dimly heard and subtle, is a sound that might have a pattern to it. Many sounds and voices competed for our listening this year. This was the softest of them all. Yet all could fade under this sound. And we might remember this year as the year we first heard this sound, this potential pulse, heard, and in the act of pondering a response, outgrew the world. This is Ajax with a reminder to join us again next time for comedy, music, mystery, and drama on CreamCityUSA.com. Thank you.